Chapter 13 of The Book of the Damned This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patrick McAfee The Book of the Damned by Charles Fort Chapter 13b Living Age, 52-186, that, June 30, 1841, fishes, one of which was ten inches long, fell at Boston, that, eight days later, fishes and ice fell at Derby. In Timbs' yearbook, 1842-275, it is said that, at Derby, the fishes had fallen in enormous numbers, from half an inch to two inches long, and some considerably larger. In the Athenaeum, 1841, 542, copied from the Sheffield Patriot, it is said that one of the fishes weighed three ounces. In several accounts, it is said that with the fishes fell many small frogs and pieces of half-melted ice. We are told that the frogs and the fishes had been raised from some other part of the earth's surface in a whirlwind. No whirlwind specified. Nothing said as to what part of the earth's surface comes ice in the month of July. Interests us that the ice is described as half-melted. In the London Times, July 15, 1841, it is said that the fishes were sticklebacks that they had fallen with ice and small frogs, many of which had survived the fall. We note that, at Dumfermline, three months later, October 7, 1841, fell many fishes, several inches in length, in a thunderstorm. London Times, October 12, 1841. Hailstones we don't care so much about. The matter of stratification seems significant, but we think more of the fall of lumps of ice from the sky, as possible data of the Super Sargasso Sea. Lumps of ice a foot in circumference, Derbyshire, England, May 12, 1811, Annual Register, 1811-54. Cuboidal mass, six inches in diameter, that fell at Birmingham, 26 days later, Thompson, Intro to Meteorology, page 179. Size of Pumpkins, Bangalore, India, May 22, 1851, Report British Association, 1855-35. Masses of ice of a pound and a half each, New Hampshire, August 13, 1851. Lummis, Meteorology, page 129. Masses of ice, size of a man's head, in the Delphos Tornado, Farrell, Popular Treatise, page 428. Large as a man's hand, killing thousands of sheep, Texas, May 3, 1877, Monthly Weather Review, May 1877. 
pieces of ice so large that they could not be grasped in one hand. In a tornado, in Colorado, June 24, 1877. Monthly Weather Review, June 1877. Lumps of ice four and a half inches long. Richmond, England, August 2, 1879. Simons Meteorological Magazine, 14100. Mass of ice 21 inches in circumference that fell with hail, Iowa, June 1881. Monthly Weather Review. June 1881. Pieces of ice eight inches long and an inch and a half thick. Davenport, Iowa, August 30th, 1882. Monthly Weather Review, August 1882. Lump of ice size of a brick, weight two pounds. Chicago, July 12th, 1883. Monthly Weather Review, July, 1883. Lumps of ice that weighed one pound and a half each. India, May, 1888. Nature, 37 through 42. Lump of ice weighing four pounds. Texas, December 6, 1893. Scientific American, 68, 58. Lumps of ice one pound in weight, November 14, 1901. In a tornado, Victoria, Meteorology of Australia, page 34. Of course, it is our acceptance that these masses not only accompanied tornadoes, but were brought down to this earth by tornadoes. Flammarion, The Atmosphere, page 34 block of ice weighing four and a half pounds that fell at Cazorta, Spain, June 15, 1829. Block of ice weighing 11 pounds at Cita, France, October 1844. Mass of ice three feet long, three feet wide, and more than two feet thick that fell in a storm in Hungary, May 8, 1802. Scientific American, 47, 119. That, according to the Salina Journal, a mass of ice weighing about 80 pounds had fallen from the sky near Salina, Kansas, August 1882. We are told that Mr. W.J. Hagler, the North Santa Fe merchant, became possessor of it and packed it in sawdust in his store. London Times, April 7, 1860, that upon the 16th of March, 1860, in a snowstorm in Upper Wasdale, blocks of ice so large that at a distance they looked like a flock of sheep had fallen. Report of the British Association, 1851-32. That a mass of ice about a cubic yard in size had fallen at Kandish, India, 1828. Against these data, though, so far as I know, so many of them have never been assembled together before, 
there is a silence upon the part of scientific men that is unusual. Our super-sargasso sea may not be an unavoidable conclusion, but arrival upon this earth of ice from external regions does seem to be, except that there must be, be it ever so faint, a merger. It is in the notion that these masses of ice are only congealed hailstones. We have data against this notion, as applied to all our instances, but the explanation has been offered, and it seems to me may apply in some instances. In the Bulletin Société Astronomical de France, 2245, it is said of blocks of ice the size of decanters that had fallen at Tunis that they were only masses of congealed hailstones. London Times, August 4, 1857. That a block of ice described as pure ice, weighing 25 pounds, had been found in the meadow of Mr. Warner of Cricklewood. There had been a storm the day before. As in some of our other instances, no one had seen this object fall from the sky. It was found after the storm. That's all that can be said about it. Letter from Captain Blackiston, communicated by General Sabine to the Royal Society. London Royal Society Proceedings, 10-468. That, January 14, 1860, in a thunderstorm, pieces of ice had fallen upon Captain Blackiston's vessel, that it was not hail. It was not hail, but irregular-shaped pieces of solid ice of different dimensions up to the size of half a brick. According to the advertiser Scotsman, quoted by the Edinburgh New Philosophical Magazine, 47-371, an irregular-shaped mass of ice fell at Ord, Scotland, August 1849, after an extraordinary peal of thunder. It is said that this was homogeneous ice, except in a small part which looked like congealed hailstones. The mass was about 20 feet in circumference. The story, as told in the London Times, August 14, 1849, is that, upon the evening of the 13th of August, 1849, after a loud peal of thunder, a mass of ice, said to have been twenty feet in circumference, had fallen upon the estate of Mr. Moffat, of Balvulich, Rossshire. It is said that this object fell alone, or without hailstones. Altogether, though, it is not so strong for the super-sargasso sea, I think, this is one of our best expressions upon external origins, that large blocks of ice could form in the moisture of this earth's atmosphere is about as likely as that blocks of stone could form in a dust whirl. Of course, if ice or water comes to this earth from external sources, we think of at least minute organisms in it and on with our data to frogs, fishes, on to anything that's thinkable coming from external sources. 
It's of great importance to us to accept that large lumps of ice have fallen from the sky, but what we desire most, perhaps because of our interest in its archaeologic and paleontologic treasures, is now to be through with tentativeness and probation and to take the Super Sargasso Sea into full acceptance in our more advanced fold of the chosen of this 20th century. In the report of the British Association, 1855-37, it is said that at Purandur, India, December 11, 1854, flat pieces of ice, many of them weighing several pounds, each, I suppose, had fallen from the sky. They are described as large ice flakes. Vast fields of ice in the super-Arctic regions, or strata of the super-Sargasso Sea, when they break up, their fragments are flake-like. In our acceptance, there are aerial ice fields that are remote from this earth, that break up, fragments grinding against one another, rolling in vapor and water of different constituency in different regions, forming slowly as stratified hailstones, but that there are ice fields near this earth that break up into just such flat pieces of ice as cover any pond or river when ice of a pond or river is broken and are sometimes soon precipitated to the earth in this familiar flat formation. Simon's Meteorological Magazine, 43-154. A correspondent writes that, at Braemar, July 2, 1908, when the sky was clear overhead and the sun shining, flat pieces of ice fell from somewhere. The sun was shining, but something was going on somewhere. Thunder was heard. Until I saw the reproduction of a photograph in the Scientific American, February 21, 1914, I had supposed that these ice fields must be, say, at least 10 or 20 miles away from this Earth, and invisible to terrestrial observers, except as the blurs that have so often been reported by astronomers and meteorologists. The photograph published by the Scientific American is of an aggregation supposed to be clouds, presumably not very high. So clearly detailed are they. The writer says that they looked to him like a field of broken ice. Beneath is a picture of a conventional field of ice, floating ordinarily in water. The resemblance between the two pictures is striking. Nevertheless, it seems to me incredible that the first of the photographs could be of an aerial ice field, or that gravitation could cease to act at only a mile or so from this Earth's surface, unless the exceptional, the flux and vagary of all things, or that normally this Earth's gravitation extends, say, 10 or 15 miles outward but that gravitation must be rhythmic. Of course, in the pseudo-formulas of astronomers, gravitation as a fixed quantity is essential. Except that gravitation is a variable force, and astronomers deflate, 
with a perceptible hissing sound, into the punctured condition of economists, biologists, meteorologists, and all the others of the humbler divinities, who can admittedly offer only insecure approximations. We refer all who would not like to hear the hiss of escaping arrogance to Herbert Spencer's chapters upon the rhythm of all phenomena. If everything else, light from the stars, heat from the sun, the winds and the tides, forms and colors and sizes of animals, demands and supplies and prices, political opinions and chemic reactions, and religious doctrines, and magnetic intensities, and the ticking of clocks, and arrival and departure of the seasons, if everything else is variable, we accept that the notion of gravitation as fixed and formulable is only another attempted positivism, doomed like all other illusions of realness in quasi-existence. So it is intermediatism to accept that Though gravitation may approximate higher to invariability than do the winds, for instance, it must be somewhere between the absolutes of stability and instability. Here, then, we are not much impressed with the opposition of physicists and astronomers, fearing a little mournfully that their language is of expiring sibilations. So then the fields of ice in the sky, and that, though usually so far away as to be mere blurs, at times they come close enough to be seen in detail. For description of what I call a blur, see Popular Science News, February 1884. Sky, in general, unusually clear, but near the sun, a white slightly curdled haze which was dazzlingly bright we accept that sometimes fields of ice pass between the sun and the earth that many strata of ice or very thick fields of ice or superimposed fields would obscure the sun that there have been occasions when the sun was eclipsed by fields of ice flammarion the atmosphere page 394 that a profound darkness came upon the city of Brussels June 18 1839 there fell flat pieces of ice an inch long intense darkness at Aitken Minnesota April 2nd 1889 sand and solid chunks of ice reported to have fallen science April 19, 1889. In Simon's Meteorological Magazine, 32172, are outlined rough-edged but smooth-surfaced pieces of ice that fell at Manassas, Virginia, August 10, 1897. They look as much like the roughly broken fragments of a smooth sheet of ice as ever have roughly broken fragments of a smooth sheet of ice looked about two inches across and one inch thick in cosmos 3116 it is said that at Rouen July 5th 1853 fell 
irregular shaped pieces of ice about the size of a hand described as looking as if all had been broken from one enormous block of ice that i think was an aerial iceberg in the awful density or almost absolute stupidity of the nineteenth century it never occurred to anybody to look for traces of polar bears or of seals upon these fragments of course seeing what we want to see having been able to gather these data only because they are in agreement with notions formed in advance we are not so respectful to our own notions as to a similar impression forced upon an observer who had no theory or acceptance to support in general our prejudices see and our prejudices investigate but this should not be taken as an absolute monthly weather review july eighteen ninety four that from the weather bureau of portland oregon a tornado of june third eighteen ninety four was reported fragments of ice fell from the sky they averaged three to four inches square and about an inch thick in length and breadth they had the smooth surfaces required by our acceptance and according to the writer in the review gave the impression of a vast field of ice suspended in the atmosphere and suddenly broken into fragments about the size of the palm of the hand this datum profoundly of what we used to call the damned or before we could no longer accept judgment or cut and dried condemnation by infants turtles and lambs was copied but without comment in the scientific american seventy one three seventy one our theology is something like this of course we ought to be damned but we revolt against adjudication by infants turtles and lambs so now come to some remarkable data in a rather difficult department of supergeography vast fields of aerial ice there's a lesson to me in the treachery of the imaginable most of our opposition is in the clearness with which the conventional but impossible becomes the imaginable and then the resistant to modifications after it had become the conventional with me i conceived clearly of vast sheets of ice a few miles above this earth then the shining of the sun and the ice partly melting that note upon the ice that fell at derby water trickling and forming icicles upon the lower surface of the ice sheet i seemed to look up and so clearly visualized those icicles hanging like stalactites from a flat-roofed cave in white calcite or i looked up at the underside of an aerial ice lump and seemed to see a papillation similar to that observed by a calf at times but then but then if icicles should form upon the underside of a sheet of aerial ice that would be by the falling of water toward this earth an icicle is of course an expression of gravitation and if water melting from ice should fall toward this earth why not the ice itself fall before an icicle 
could have time to form. Of course, in quasi-existence, where everything is a paradox, one might argue that the water falls, but the ice does not, because the ice is heavier, that is, in masses. That notion, I think, belongs in a more advanced course than we are taking at present. Our expression upon icicles. A vast field of aerial ice. It is inert to this Earth's gravitation. But by universal flux and variation, part of it sags closer to this Earth and is susceptible to gravitation. By cohesion with the main mass, this part does not fall, but water melting from it does fall and forms icicles. Then, by various disturbances, this part sometimes falls in fragments that are protrusive with icicles. Of the ice that fell, some of it enclosing living frogs at Dubuque, Iowa, June 16, 1882, it is said, Monthly Weather Review, June 1882, that there were pieces from 1 to 17 inches in circumference, the largest weighing 1 pound and 3 quarters, that upon some of them were icicles half an inch in length. We emphasize that these objects were not hailstones. The only merger is that of knobby hailstones, or of large hailstones, with protuberances wrought by crystallization. But that is no merger with terrestrial phenomena, and such formations are unaccountable to orthodoxy, or it is incredible that hail could so crystallize, not forming by accretion, in the fall of a few seconds. For an account of such hailstones, see Nature, 61-594. Note the size. Some of them the size of turkey's eggs. It is our expression that sometimes the icicles themselves have fallen, as if by concussion, or as if something had swept against the underside of an aerial ice flow, detaching its papillations. Monthly Weather Review, June 1889. That, at Oswego, New York, June 11, 1889, according to the Turin, New York, leader, there fell, in a thunderstorm, pieces of ice that resembled the fragments of icicles. Monthly Weather Review, 29506. That, on Florence Island, St. Lawrence River, August 8, 1901, with ordinary hail, fell pieces of ice formed like icicles, the size and shape of lead pencils that had been cut into sections about three-eighths of an inch in length. So our data of the Super Sargasso Sea and its Arctic region and, for weeks at a time, an ice field may hang motionless over part of this Earth's surface. The sun has some effect upon it, but not much until late in the afternoon, I should say, Part of it has sagged, but is held up by cohesion with the main mass, whereupon we have such an occurrence, as would have been a little uncanny to us once upon a time, or fall of water from a cloudless sky, day after day, in one small part of this Earth's surface, 
late in the afternoon, when the sun's rays had had time for their effects. Monthly Weather Review, October 1886. That, according to the Charlotte Chronicle, October 21st, 1886, for three weeks there had been a fall of water from the sky in Charlotte, North Carolina, localized in one particular spot, every afternoon about three o'clock, that, whether the sky was cloudy or cloudless, the water or rain fell upon a small patch of land between two trees and nowhere else. This is the newspaper account, and, as such, it seems in the depths of the unchosen, either by me or any other expression of the Salvation Army. The account by the Signal Service Observer at Charlotte, published in the Review, follows. An unusual phenomenon was witnessed on the 21st, having been informed that, for some weeks prior to date, rain had been falling daily after 3 p.m. on a particular spot near two trees, corner of 9th and D streets. I visited the place and saw precipitation in the form of raindrops at 4.47 and 4.55 p.m., while the sun was shining brightly. On the 22nd, I again visited the place, and from 4.05 to 4.25 p.m., a light shower of rain fell from a cloudless sky. Sometimes the precipitation falls over an area of half an acre, but always appears to center at these two trees, and when lightest occurs there only. End of chapter 13 Recording by Patrick McAfee Chicago G-I-S dot DePaul dot edu slash P. McAfee